Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. I've been having fun today because I've been uh, taking a look at a recent issue of Now Magazine at the annual Now Magazine Reader's Choice Awards poll. It's a it's an institution in Toronto. Oftentimes you go into stores and they'll have their little plaque uh, by the cashier that says Now Magazine Reader's Choice 2008 or whatever. Here at the Gore Lieberman Studios, we're just surrounded by all of our number ones. The, there's not an inch of, of blank wall space because we've just won so many times. Best we- podcasters, hottest guys, <laughs> coolest dudes, uh, best best couple, best uh, best dressed, most perfect politics. Now this year we we sort of ruined it because we swept every category. Yeah, but uh, there are a lot of runners up. Uh, I'm just kidding. We weren't even we weren't even nominated. Well, you know, it's an honor to almost to- not be nominated. <laughs> So Now Magazine is the alt-weekly that uh, remains in Toronto. There used to be two alt-weeklies. The other one was iWeekly. Later the Grid. Later the Grid. Which we've talked about. And and that's the one that I have the most fondness for because I was an intern there at one point. I wrote for Now. I don't think I ever wrote for iWeekly. Did you ever write for Now? No, I've never written for Now. I'm I'm open to it, folks. We have connections to both of these institutions. Now, I, I do think the Now Magazine Reader's Choice poll is you know useful in some ways there are a lot of good restaurant recommendations in here if you want to know what the you know the best thai food is or whatever but i am beginning to think that there are too many categories here so for example (laughs) it's like that thing in naked gun 33 and a third when they go to the oscars and it's like uh Oh yeah, they added 70 new categories. And then Leslie Nielsen looks at the program and he's like, best actor in a Columbus movie? (laughs) Right. I genuinely am curious if anybody has completed the entire poll because there are, I think, over 100 categories in this poll. I mean, you would die if you actually attempted to fill out every poll. And just scanning the list here, best furniture store, the winner is Ikea. Best on... classic (laughs) Toronto institution. Best online retailer... Etsy.com, and the runner-up is, you guessed it, Amazon. Well, better luck next year, Jeff. Yeah, that'll save him the plane ticket for having to come to Toronto to pick up his plaque. For the award ceremony. You don't think he'll be there, like, tearfully at the award ceremony at at his table, and he'll have to do that sort of magnanimous, like, oh, like, applause (laughs) (laughs) when Etsy takes it. Best grocery store, uh, no frills. I would agree with that, actually. (laughs) Yeah, you know, they have a good service. Uh, Best streaming service is Netflix. (laughs) I swear to God, in our... That's made up. No, it is here. In our local alt-weekly, the winner of best streaming service, uh, and remember, this is the (laughs) alt-weekly. Oh, dear. This is for alternative culture, is Netflix. And I think the the Now Magazine Reader's Choice Award poll, I think it needs a bit of a rethink. I think we need to either cut out some of these categories or we need to maybe put limits on what some of the nominees can be. Call me anti-democratic if you must. (laughs) But I think, you know, when Netflix is winning the local alt-weekly's best streaming service category... 
Perhaps the people have too much democracy. I, I'm not sure Amazon and Netflix should sort of be placing or be in the running for something like this. Right. Even some of the ones that are a little more local. It's very funny to me to see Best Dance Company, the National Ballet of Canada. <laughs> I mean, they like, are good. They are good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, no doubt about it. But I mean, can't we like, can't we put their jersey up on the wall? I mean, isn't it sort of a given that they're the Best Dance Company? Yeah, it can go up there with, you know, Sundane and Gilmore and the gang. With best podcast, I mean, so no, we we weren't nominated, were we? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. No, <laughs> uh, you know, actually, I think we should campaign for it next year. We probably should. If if people, you have forty thousand followers. <laughs> I think you actually can... have almost fifty thousand. Excuse me. Even better. I think we can rally some of those people. If if people listening to this will remember a year from now, most of you are not in Toronto. <laughs> log on to the Now People's Choice or whatever. What's it called? The Now uh, Readers Re- Readers Choice Readers Award. Choice Awards. So we can put up one of those beautiful plaques mm. in the Gore Lieberman Studio. Yeah, we'll put up one. More. And yeah. this is different from an election where you're not allowed to donate to a different country. Uh-huh. Uh, Foreign interference is fine, folks. And encourage, encourage even. Uh, that Amazon thing, that's just yeah. their publicists at work, right? I think so. I'm going to slander their the publicist, Reader's Choice poll. Publicists gaming the algorithms. That's like one publicist at Amazon HQ just... Uh, vote Amazon, delete cookies, vote Amazon again. And who says Michael and Us Nation can do the same? So I haven't voted in this poll, and I'm not actually sure how the voting works. But I am curious, like, did anybody actually feel passionate enough to go in and say, I have to go vote for Netflix in that category so that Netflix has the recognition it deserves? Or was this just an example of a whole troll army at Netflix headquarters was just employed day in, day out, having to vote again and again for Netflix in this category because they've got to get it. They have to have everything, even this Toronto-based alt-weeklies award. Better luck next to your Shopify. Obviously, Now Magazine isn't cutting the mustard, so we are launching the Michael and Us Toronto People's Choice Awards. We're going to start giving our own awards. Best online retailer is, of course, the Michael and Us Patreon account. <laughs> Best Twitter personality, uh, Luke Savage, uh, <laughs> wins in an upset. Unfortunately, Will Sloan is uh, a mere runner-up. Another thing that's funny about this poll is they have a category for best activist, which is, I guess, fine because, like, well, that actually makes that makes it, sense. It, it, yeah. do, it does make sense. People doing good work in the community should be recognized. I love that there's a runner-up for best activist. It's, it's like you were almost the best. Yeah, activist. you know, you know, better luck next time. Sorry, you weren't just you weren't a good enough activist. See, that's actually a real category. It's a little weird to have a, a poll that has like like a Reader's Choice poll that has the category best activist alongside best streaming service. Yeah, it does feel weird to be like kind judging. Of it. Last week on the Patreon episode, we were talking about the internet. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, We were talking about the old internet, 
how the internet has shaped our lives, how the internet has created communities for us, and the differences between the old internet and the new internet. A relic of the old internet is Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is a subject that's come up numerous times on this podcast because it's a shared interest of ours. Oh yeah, very much so. Big, big part of both of our, I guess, childhoods and and adolescences. I mean, when we were talking about the internet last week, I talked about how in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, if you knew something like Mystery Science Theater 3000, like I was certainly the only kid in my school, you know, me and my friends were the only people who knew about it. And the internet was something where, you know, you would see these fan sites for it and think, oh, there are there are other fans out there. Mystery Science Theater doesn't feel the same way anymore because now it's like a megabucks Netflix it's on franchise. Netflix, yeah. yeah, and there's like a whole... Best streaming service. There's been like a gigantic revival that has, you know, Patton Oswalt on it. So it's not exactly the same. Uh, it certainly felt to me at the time like this thing that was this dispatch from the Midwest that seemed like a secret. Oh yeah, it felt very exotic to me as well. In my house, we used to get, you know, those DVD box sets. Mm-hmm. You might have, I think you mentioned you even had a few of them on VHS. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I used to, I think I've said this in the podcast before, but I'm going to say it again. I used to, when I was a kid, save my allowance money and go downtown and I would buy a $20 Mystery Science Theater VHS tape. One, which one episode? One episode. You oh, know, man. Cave Dwellers or Manos, the Hands of Fate oh, or something like that. And, you know, I would wear it out, basically. I If you played uh, Mitchell with Joe Don Baker, without the commentary I, I could still probably just do it i think you could do most of like girl in the gold boots yeah. space mutiny oh, space that was mutiny, a big one classic. um killer shrews was a big one for oh, me yeah. yeah yeah in our house we used to get them and and just kind of watch you know you'd only get four episodes even on the dvd ones and i mean we would watch the same episode like the it was just the episode was just a movie that we watched mm-hmm. over and over again yeah and we knew all the jokes like yeah. with my brother and i we would just we would do all the riffs also i feel like uh, this is two weeks in a row of just straight up nostalgia. We're, we're gonna get, I should say, we're gonna get back to the the basics soon. I think we just Will and I realized about a month ago that we kind of had to take a pause from because you know, the U.S. election cycle is so 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 long, and we can't just have. We know, just had a Canadian election yeah, too. Yeah, so. yeah. There was an election kicking off in in Britain, or this just kicked off. We can't just have 30 minutes at the start of every episode being like, Elizabeth Warren, what's she up to? So uh, is is Mayor Pete going to stay in? Uh, we had to take a little pause. And, you know, my impression from uh, reading some of the comments on our Patreon is that people kind of wanted us to uh, take a little bit of a break. So I'm don't worry, still, we're going to get back uh, to it soon. I'm also still licking my wounds from my preferred candidate, Beto O'Rourke, dropping out. Yeah, condolences. Yeah. You know, the internet was sort of in its infancy. I sound like, you know, a hack Time magazine. <laughs> you know, narrator saying <laughs> the that. internet's infancy. The internet was sort of in its infancy when I discovered Mystery Science Theater, and you were sort of limited to the entertainment options on TV and at your local video store and your library. So Mystery Science Theater felt like this, you know, world. A lot of sort of serious cinephiles and also a lot of sci-fi horror geeks have a chip on their shoulder about Mystery Science Theater 3000 saying it was sort of disrespectful to genre entertainment or to low budget filmmaking or what have you. And when I was a kid, I very much regarded it the way that sort of kids in the 1950s or 1960s would regard like TV horror hosts like Vampira or Sven Gulli who would like play old horror movies and, you know, do little interstitials. It was like 
this was an intro to strange and exotic films that you wouldn't see otherwise. Like Mystery Science Theater put all of these very bizarre movies onto the cult map, like Manos, The Hands of Fate in particular. It's interesting to me that that's your point of view on it, because you're somebody who very much appreciates and kind of grew up with, and I think is also a a kind of scholar of, um, you know, what might be, you know, colloquially referred to as kind of trash culture. Sure. You know, for people that don't know, Will is probably one of the world's leading authorities on the cinema of Ed Wood. I don't think that's an exaggeration. <laughs> Will has fiction that was written by Ed Wood. He wrote a ton of really crappy fiction, and you've mm. actually read a lot of it. Mm. Um, so it's interesting to me that you're also an appreciator of MST3K. You've resisted that very kind of popular impulse to kind of deride it for spoiling or punching down with these B-movies, these bits of kind of cultural paraphernalia. When I watched it, not being immersed in that universe myself, I would say it really was more of a punching down. That was the thing that initially, anyway, I enjoyed about it the most. I think my appreciation for it, the scope of that appreciation has widened a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really did just sort of like it for, for oh, uh, you know, oh, there's a styrofoam rock and it looks mm-hmm. really stupid and they're, I mean, they're I, calling it I, yeah. out. And I certainly don't want to pretend that I was always above that either because, like, no. when you're a kid... My friend and I first rented Mystery Science Theater, the movie, from the video store. We had just finished grade five. And around that time, we were very much into laughing at bad movies because I think it probably made us feel superior. Like when you're a kid, you're looking for any sort of validation that you were smart and that you can see through something that adults have created. So what fools we were we would watch like the godzilla movies and be like ha that's a guy in a rubber costume you know as if the japanese don't know know? (laughs) but but we thought we were so clever you know we would look at the ed wood movies and say oh hey it's a flying saucer on a string so certainly i had and to some extent still do have that impulse But I think Mystery Science Theater has stayed with me and has aged pretty well for me because it's not actually really about tearing these movies apart. The movies are just sort of the straight man for a Mm meta-commentary. And I think if you watch most of the episodes, they're not... Like, a lot of them are kind of affectionate towards the movies. I mean, when I think when they're mean, the movie usually deserves it. I agree. Yeah. Like, overdrawn at the memory bank. Or, <laughs> or Space Mutiny. And even with that one, they're pretty careful. You know, they, they talk a lot about, like, the late, great Raul Julia. Like, mm-hmm. what is he doing in this piece of shit? That one, I think, incidentally, was partly filmed in Hamilton, Ontario. That, that like, shopping mall that they filmed in it. I, I thought that was filmed at the Atrium on Bay, although I could be oh, wrong. Oh, maybe it's, maybe it's in Toronto. I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> that one has that great line about, uh, so Finkel didn't doppel. Because mm-hmm. the conceit of that movie, right, is that people have doppels that they, they're like an avatar that you download in the computer, and this is like the form of recreation. But if you're like yeah. a low-paid worker like Raul Julia, he's like, uh, I got 27 credits. What was what did that get me? And they're like, an anteater, maybe. Right. The, the movie is sort of like Brazil meets Tron yeah. or something, but movie, on a much lower budget. The movie hates anteaters for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so lots of digs at anteaters. We should probably mention what the premise of Mystery Science the is it's yeah uh, i guess we're just sort of assuming people know uh, what it is but for those who who haven't had the pleasure uh in the not too distant future there is a janitor at a futuristic mega corporation called gizmonics institute 
First is Joel Hodgson, the series creator playing Joel Robinson. Uh, His bosses didn't like him and they shot him into space as the theme song goes. And he's stuck on this satellite and mad scientists force him to watch bad movies. And he uh, comments on them and makes riffs and jokes with his two robot companions that he's built. Mm -hmm. And there's a third robot on the the satellite of love. That's Gypsy, who's a big vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And a fourth, Cambot, who records the show. That's right. Almost never seen. And these are like experiments that are being done on them. That's the conceit of the show. Because eventually the mad scientists are going to find a movie that's so bad, they'll be able to rule the world with it. Yeah, they'll broadcast. It's like Pinky in the Brain. That's like, right. Like, same thing we do every night, you know, try to take over the world. The implication, as I always understood as a kid, is when they find the movie that's like so bad, it'll wreck everyone's brains. They'll like somehow broadcast it worldwide. Right. And Joel and later Mike try to maintain their sanity lobbing witticisms at the Mm. film and you see them in their little silhouettes the iconic silhouettes in the bottom right corner i really thought about it before but that's actually sort of a beautiful metaphor for how we all have to use irony as a shield now in the 21st century because culture is just we're just bombarded we're we're so much stuff is just forced in our face and what can you even do? It's, it's there to drive you mad. Online is there to drive you mad. Hmm. But irony is your shield. Riffs are your shield. It's funny you say that because, I mean, Mystery Science Theater has definitely been accused of punching down, of picking on these easy targets. And in a way, the premise of the show might actually work better if they were going after big Hollywood movies. Obviously, they don't have the rights to do that. It would be It would be impossible for the show to actually go after big Hollywood schlock. But like that's the sort of stuff that we have to protect ourselves and, from. And, and why can't we? Why can't we see them do that? Because they don't have the rights for it. Right. Because ultimately, capital rules all. So mm-hmm. even our our comedy is circumscribed by capital ownership. So they so they do things that are mainly in the public domain, right? Yeah. And or if not in the public domain, stuff that's very cheap. Right. That distributors send them in bulk. Now you, you were know. saying there were a few that they tried to do, but then they had kind of eccentric owners or people with like agenda. Like, we have to protect this movie about, like, lizard people in a swamp or something. We can't let them make fun of it. I mean, I know that there are a lot of episodes that can't be released on DVD or streaming now because the owners saw what happened. And, and They're on torrenting websites, though, right? Well, yeah, they you can find them anywhere. They can't stop us. Yeah. <laughs> I know also that Joe Don Baker famously was unhappy with... Uh, with how much fun they made of him in the Mitchell episode. There were other copyright owners who now want a lot of money because they're like, oh, you know, uh, this piece of shit that we wrote off 30 years ago, it looks like there's some interest in it. You know, let's jack up the price. It's funny too, you know, some of the films themselves are kind of weird acts of retrieval, which is one of the reasons they're so bad. So, I mean, Space Mutiny, which is, I think, probably, if, if, if you've never seen Mystery Science Theater, but you have Netflix, best streaming service, according to Now Reader's Poll, check out that one. That's a good entry point. And Space Mutiny, all of the models, and even kind of the plot, they're very derivative of just the original 1980s Battlestar Galactica show. So even, even some of the films they're doing are already kind of weirdly meta. You know, a lot of people have compared the scene to the climactic chariot scene in Ben-Hur. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, they usually say, Ben-Hur was really good. This movie totally sucks. Yeah, right. follows, right? You wish you'd never come here, Ryder. Active Senior's lifestyle says thumbs up. It will make your heart race, though maybe that's not such a good thing. I get you, you bastard! <laughs> 
meddling fool. <laughs> what is he, snidely whiplash? <laughs> You know, you can actually get another three miles an hour in these babies if you take it off the shag setting. By the way, Space Mutiny was made at apartheid South Africa. I didn't know. That's an interesting detail. Yeah, fun fact. I don't Space know. Space it... Mutiny canceled. <laughs> yeah. God, never have heroes. For somebody like me who likes movies, I think, you know, the, the politics of what is considered bad on Mystery Science Theater are maybe worth probing. Jonathan Rosenbaum, in his very caustic negative review of the Mystery Science Theater movie, accused them of having this kind of narrow-minded and reactionary view of what a bad movie is. You know, it's a, it typically an older genre movie often black and white, often low budget. Again, I think this point sort of makes more sense if the Mystery Science Theater crew were really being hard on the movies, but they aren't. The movies are just sort of like a straight man for their goofs. It's also important to note, just and as a further point of exposition, the Mystery Science Theater started on uh, St. Paul, Minnesota public access. Is that right? That's right, because Joel Hodgson was a comedian He was on the David Letterman show. He was on Saturday Night Live for a few episodes. He had had some success and he decided to go back to Minnesota and he was sort of noodling around experimenting on this public access station. And the movies they showed on the public access station were movies that the public access station had, which were the cheapest, shittiest movies. Very abject stuff. I know that the writers of the show come from pretty wide political spectrum, but I would say the show, its politics are generally fairly liberal. There are many episodes where they talk about educational shorts from the 40s and 50s and 60s, where most of most of the laughs are about how kind of reactionary and dated the, sh- the shorts like gender politics are. Oh, you know, those were always some of my favorites. And actually, I had a great experience recently in a friend's backyard. Uh, he, uh, he put up a big projector screen and uh, he queued up. It wasn't the Mystery Science Theater version. It was just the short. But that was always one of my favorite one of their shorts was the uh, A Date With Your uh, Family. I knew you were going to say which, that. Which, the Woody Allen story. <laughs> which, if people want to see it now, you can you can just, if you search A Date With Your Family on YouTube, you can watch it. It's a 50s short film. And even just the fact that it exists is extraordinary because, you know, in the 1950s, America was boldly standing up uh, for freedom against the uh, the loathsome, godless communist oppressor. But honestly, I doubt even Stalinism could have ever come up with anything as as Orwellian as a date with your family, which is, you know, literally a instructional video for how to have dinner with and kind of be social with your family. And it turns out the rules are so unbelievably strict. And, you know, and what's so funny is that the whole time it's saying stuff like, Remember, this is a pleasant affair to be enjoyed pleasantly you with know, pleasant conversation. Father has been working all day. <laughs> now is not the time for emotional conversation. <laughs> yeah, come on, hand it over. Their dad as though they are genuinely glad to see him. They're not, of course. So they had really missed being away from him during the day and are anxious to talk to him. Bob Green. If they have disagreeable news, they'll postpone the discussion until another time. When he's asleep. This is no time to dun father for a raise in your allowance, mm-hmm. new clothes, or argue about oh, other no. financial <laughs> matters. <laughs> father, I had a feeling today. Well, don't, son. Okay. Ah, dinner time. <sighs> yes, mother. Junior remembered to clean up. You emasculating bent. Hi, I'm Betty, and I'll be your wife tonight. Well, this certainly is pleasant. 
Yeah, it's it's you know, all of the gender and familial roles are very you know it's rigidly really forced. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's the fifties, so it's obviously like very pre second wave feminist. So <laughs> there's stuff like. Uh, Oh, it's dinner time. Better tell mother she's needed in the kitchen. Right, right. <laughs> I love the omniscient male voice narration. That's just like the voice of patriarchal capitalism telling you how to live your life in the name of freedom. It's great. Yeah, watch a date with your family. It's actually incredible to me in retrospect that this show, which started as a public access experiment and became a very culty cable show and never a particularly popular cable show but on some networks that people have heard of right it was, was on it, comedy central it was on comedy central before south park basically and then sci-fi channel right. later right that's right it eventually became a feature film that was distributed by no less than universal studios although a rather uh, lower tier feature film i think it's fair to say every year hollywood makes hundreds of movies this is one of them. Gramercy Pictures invites you to the first big screen adventure of Mystery Science Theater 3000. You hit something. You killed the Hubble. At last, the crew aboard the Satellite of Love can tell jokes without a censor. Yeah, so we decided to uh, watch the movie. I mean, we could have watched any number of episodes, and Will and I definitely both have favorites, and there's probably a few episodes. Will may have actually seen all of the episodes. There's definitely some I haven't that seen I haven't all seen. of them, but, you know, yeah. I, I have seen a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, in thinking about which one could we watch, the movie kind of made sense. And it's it's interesting for a few reasons. I mean, one is that it's slightly higher budget than, although shorter, than a regular episode of the show. Two, and this is something that, uh, you know, Will and I have seen this film each so many times. I think, you know, we, we kind of remembered most of the riffs and stuff. But one of the things I was very curious about was how well the film they watched would hold up. And there's a film called This Island Earth that was made in the 50s. And some of the discourse surrounding the Mystery Science Theater movie kind of holds that they're a little unfair to this film, which I was interested to probe because I couldn't really remember whether the film is good or not. I mean, it's a film from the 1950s, and so it has all the kind of tropes. It has, you know, a, a pretty derivative sort of uh, romance plot. It has, you know, all the tropes of a kind of a slightly stolid 1950s film. And a lot of stuff that's pretty easy to make fun of. Like yeah. The aliens have big foreheads. <laughs> and yet nobody sort of you know, picks up on the fact that they're aliens mm -hmm. until until they literally come down in a flying saucer. There's lots of base silliness like that. And this was a movie that was picked because, you know, it's a Universal Pictures movie. so They, they were, own the rights. They were limited to movies from the Universal archive, and they needed something in color, and they needed something sort of widescreen and something that looked good and had cool effects that would look good on a big screen. Right, because when you think about it, a lot of the things... You couldn't do the Mystery Science Theory movie with killer shrews. Yeah, or Manos, The Hands of Fate. Yeah, because it's yeah. just too slow and kind of tedious and weird. On the other hand, a lot of what was so great about that show was finding these weird, slow, tedious movies. But I think the reason why This Island Earth kind of works is because people at least... You know, audiences going to see this in a theater would have at least recognized this as a movie mm -hmm. and they would have basically received it as this is just a sort of 
this is a B movie. This is just sort of a movie that attempts all the tropes that we're familiar with and sort of fails at. I do think Jonathan Rosenbaum's thesis about Mystery Science Theater, that its idea of a bad movie was, you know, genre, lower budget, fair, and that it was it was a somewhat reactionary and uncreative idea of what a bad movie is. It holds somewhat for this movie because This Island Earth was a pretty big budget movie in its day and it's an entirely you know professional piece of work and it's saying some sort of interesting things it, it has it has politics you, you can quibble with the politics but it's the sort of movie that i think we receive as bad now because it's old and yeah. because it's really earnest yeah now i mean the movie is not actually that hard on this island earth mm-hmm. in fact at the beginning of the movie, the evil Dr. Clayton Forrester calls it like a stink burger or something like that. But then as the guys are leaving the theater at the end, they say, that was a breeze. <laughs> because it actually was a breeze, you know? <laughs> I'm not saying that This Island Earth is above the Mystery Science Theater treatment or anything, but it does deserve a little more respect on the basic level of craft than a lot of the movies they do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, w- I would like to talk about it for a second. So so This Island Earth is basically a film about the protagonist is a scientist named uh, named. Meacham, Dr. Meacham. And, uh, you know, one day uh, he's kind of doing a, a test flight in a jet and, you know, the jet kind of stalls, but then is kind of rescued by some flashing green lights at the last minute. And then he gets an instruction manual to build some kind of weird device. It's unclear where from. He successfully builds the device and it turns out, you know, there's this strange group of scientists, one of whom talks to him through the medium of the device, tells him tomorrow there's going to be a plane that's going to land on your runway. It's going to be there for five minutes. Get on it or don't, but it's going to take off after five minutes. So eventually, of course, he goes. His curiosity gets the better of him. He's uh, surrounded by some of the world's most brilliant nuclear physicists and other uh, other scientists. And of course, the people masterminding the whole thing, you know, as, as you said before, they're clearly aliens. They have these weird, big orange foreheads. Mm-hmm. And the scientists cue in on this. Now, the movie, and by the movie, I mean the Mystery Science Theater movie, cuts, it's unclear how much, but a, quite a substantial amount, mainly from this kind of second act portion of the movie. So consider that the Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie is 72 minutes in its theatrical release version. And This Island Earth, in its original version, is over 90 minutes. And a lot of the Mystery Science Theater, those 70-something minutes, are taken up by kind of the sketches in between when they're watching the movie. Mm-hmm. So they've cut a substantial portion of the movie, which makes it seem worse than it probably is. Although, I, you know, one day I'll have to watch the full movie. But it turns out that the aliens, and of course they are aliens, are from a planet called Metaluna, and they actually need the best of Earth scientists... Uh, to help them turn various elements into uranium because they're using uranium to power some sort of shield that's protecting their planet from an orbital bombardment. By the time uh, they get there, the planet is almost destroyed and the kind of good alien who represents sort of the, uh, I guess, the objective voice of science is sort of overruled by the sort of planetary government or whatever uh, who just want the information kind of forced out of the doctor and the heroine's uh, heads. But, you know, he kind of helps them escape the planet and then they get back to Earth and that's pretty much it. So the film is, I think, if it has politics, it can be read as in the 1950s, uh, before the cold, the reality of the Cold War had really, I think, set in or before people realized that this was going to sort of be a half century of the world breaking up into these kind of competing nuclear armed blocks, there was a lot of optimism about nuclear energy, and it being a sort of inexhaustible fuel source, power source that was going to 
uh, you know, basically end the need for war, end kind of scarcity in the future. There was a lot of kind of techno optimism in the 1950s. And this film, I think, is laudably kind of cautioning against some of that. There's also a certain fear of kind of atomic power that ran throughout the 1950s and kind of the early atomic age and, and just of science in general. Um, you know, like, we, we just split the atom, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. That kind of runs through the movie as well. The fact that the, the plot of the movie is that these aliens who have interstellar flight are traveling across the galaxy, and they're actually, they need humanity's help with this. Like, humanity actually has something that they haven't themselves mm -hmm. developed. That speaks to kind of the fear of nuclear power in the nuclear age. The film doesn't have much more to say than that. I don't think it's particularly nuanced. But watching it again, I confess I didn't find it particularly bad. I don't think it's any worse than a semi-decent episode of maybe the original Star Trek or The Twilight Zone or something like that. In fact, I quite enjoyed watching Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, in part just because of the images from this island Earth. It's mm, full of these... Matte paintings. Very cool, like, 1950s special effects. Mm. Metaluna is quite beautifully rendered. Mm. It looks cheesy by... Mm today's standards mm -hmm. uh, although i think today's standards are diseased and mm -hmm. evil so <laughs> it's a bit of a digression but when you watch star trek the original series now i think on netflix the exterior shots of the ships have been edited mm. so now they're kind of like cgi and stuff now they uh. haven't they haven't really overdone it so it's not like they don't look like the avengers or whatever but if you go back and you watch the original external shots with the models and stuff i mean I'm a bit of a purist, but I do think they look a lot better. It's sort of like if you watch the Star Wars trilogy pre-special edition, it honestly looks a lot better. Yeah, I would figure that Star Trek fans in general are purists, you know? Why would they want to watch some shitty, bastardized, up-to-date version of their beloved show? Anyway, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, probably the most obvious complaint you can make about it is that it doesn't really take advantage of the possibilities opened up by the new medium. Because it, it is just a sort of shorter, higher-budget episode, basically. It feels like it could be a pilot episode of the show, which by this point had already been running six seasons. I mean, you see a couple of new rooms in the ship, but it's not like, for example, the South Park movie that really did things that couldn't be done on TV. And the fact that the jokes in the movie are, you know, an average episode. Man, though, this was the first Mystery Science Theater thing I saw rented on VHS yep. in London, Ontario. And um, the film had me right away. When they're, like, before they even got into watching This Island Earth, the part at the beginning where they're like, where is Crow? And then it turns out Crow is in the basement of the ship and he's singing, it's a long way to Tipperary. And he's mining, <laughs> he's yeah. got a little miner's helmet. And for some reason at age 11, that was so funny to me. The idea that he's he's going to puncture a hole in the bottom of the ship with like a pickaxe. Yeah. The, they just had me right then and there. And then when the film started and the credits are rolling, the opening credits, and they're already making jokes. I was like, this is this is amazing. And I never looked back. I mean, I, I had hours the, of hundreds of hours of it since. I had the exact same experience. Imagine me and my best pal, 11 years old. We've just rented this movie from Blockbuster. The opening credits of This Island Earth begin and the Mystery Science Theater peanut gallery say, who sneezed on the credits? <laughs> Be because the stars are over the credits. Now, that sounds like a pretty pedestrian joke when I say it now. And maybe it is. But to me, age 11, that was 
you know, my head exploded at that joke. It's well, like, you can do this to a movie? If you're if you're a kid growing up in the 1990s, right, the institution of a film is kind of sacrosanct. Oh, yeah. So that there's something so transgressive about that. There's something so powerfully irreverent. And I had no context for this sort of appropriative art. I mean, I guess I might have been aware of precedent for something like this would have been Woody Allen's movie What's Up Tiger Lily where he took a Japanese spy movie and redubbed it the everybody doing like a comical story in the dubbing so that was I guess the biggest precedent for something like this I'm not sure if I had seen that at the time but but I still had very little precedent for something that was an appropriative artwork the way that this was for me, it was like sort of opening Pandora's box and discovering irony for the first time oh, yeah, and, and yeah. like meta commentary. Yeah. Well, the fact that, as you said, m- movies were something that you didn't have to respect, that like something that encouraged you to talk back or think critically about movies. I think also the fact that so much of what they're having a go at is that, you know, B-movies, the thing that really stands out about them is that they're so derivative. And, you know, when you haven't really seen many B-movies, you actually realize they shine a light on how derivative a lot of, you know, A-movies, as it were, are, you know, that they actually, there's just a handful of kind of stock plots Mm -hmm. that, you know, characters, particularly in genre films, they're really stock characters that can be sort of plucked up and dropped in from film to film. And B-movies, the reason they're funny is because they just don't get away with being formulaic quite as much as other formulaic movies. And so there's something about Mystery Science Theater that, for me anyway, kind of demystified the enterprise of film. And I mean that in a constructive way, not as a criticism. Demystified it in a way that allowed me to look at films uh, much more critically than I had before. Normal view. I said earlier how strange it was to see the Universal Pictures logo at the start of this movie because a movie like this I don't think would be made by a company like Universal Pictures now. And in fact, I don't think something like this would exist as a movie per se. The fact that this was a movie is just sort of a testament to how few distribution channels and how fewer entertainment media there were in the 90s that, you know, it could either be a TV show and then the hierarchy above that was a movie and those were the options some of the alumni of mystery science theater now have this thing riff tracks where it's mp3 downloadable commentaries or video on demand of them doing commentary over either hollywood blockbusters and you can sync up your streaming service or your dvd or whatever netflix the best streaming service you can listen to their commentary for twilight while you watch twilight on netflix you and I a couple of years ago went to see a Riff Tracks thing at one of the movie theaters in Toronto. Magical night. It was a Mystery Science Theater reunion where they had you know all of the major players come and do riff on shorts together, and it was a one night only you know Fathom Events screening, and that's what the Mystery Science Theater movie would be now. It would be this very niche online culture because. The fact that Mystery Science Theater is a Netflix brand right now is only because it's been grandfathered from an older media ecosystem. If it started now, it would be a web show or it would be like a YouTube thing or it would be a podcast. And then if it got popular enough, it would become a one night only screening at your local multiplex. 
and with no attempt to cross over into the mainstream. Now, I say that it's surprising that Mystery Science Theater was a movie, but it's also sort of not surprising because as that Rift Tracks event we went to attests, there's something about Mystery Science Theater that it's parasocial. You were invited to sit there on the couch and imagine that you were there with Joel and the bots and, and you're, you're with them watching this movie. They are like artificial company for you. But there's also something about that that you want to see it with an audience. You kind of want to share this experience. I know Mystery Science Theater plays well in a group. The Riff Tracks events obviously play well to audiences. It's more, it tends to be more fun to watch it with at least one other person, I think, than by yourself. Although I have watched a lot of it by myself. Perfect right before bed. And Mystery Science Theater has spawned a lot of internet culture. We talked last week about the Nostalgia Critic, for instance, who does sort of a version of the Mystery Science Theater shtick with 90s movies or hundreds, hundreds of YouTube channels that do a version of the Mystery Science Theater shtick, reappropriating older ephemera uh, as objects of ridicule. I've heard some critics say of Mystery Science Theater that it almost does the work for you. Instead of you watching and discovering and and having fun with a bad movie, it's a passive entertainment while the robots and the guy do the jokes sort of on your behalf. But paradoxically, it's also inspired a lot of creativity and inspired a lot of people to do what they do. Wow, just imagine a couple of guys picking garbage from the past and making fun of it. It would never work. Now watch this drive. <laughs> Satellites gone up to the skies Things like that drive me out of my mind I watched it for a little while I like to watch things on TV Satellite of love, 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 satellite I watched it for a little while I love to watch things on TV Satellite of love. 
Satellite.